Uh, all right, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to the book of Mark, chapter 1. This morning, we're studying verses 14 to 20, and our message is titled, Disciple-Making Disciples. Disciple-Making Disciples. One of the joys of my work that I get to do at Loving Choices every single week, a pregnancy center, a local pregnancy center here in Fayetteville, is I have the joy of building relationships with young men um, who are oftentimes coming far from the Lord. As I meet with these young men week after week, the Lord begins to soften their hearts and provide me an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. One young man I want to tell you about this morning is Wayne. Wayne and I had been meeting for a couple of months, but other than praying for him at the conclusion of every one of our meetings, we hadn't talked much more about the Lord. See, like many of the young men that I have the privilege of meeting with at Loving Choices, Wayne came from a very challenging childhood. And because of that, he had a, a hardness in his heart to, to life in general, but in particular, a hardness to the Lord. So I decided to just be a good friend to Wayne and to help him prepare for fatherhood, which was my job. But one Wednesday morning, as he came in to meet with me, something seemed slightly different about Wayne. The hard veneer that I had come to expect wasn't on his countenance that morning, but instead he appeared postured and ready to tell me about his life. For the first time in months, we were having a conversation. And by the end of this heavy conversation involving stories of an abusive father, I told him about God the Father. And how God the Father wants to be in relationship with Him. But because of our sin and our rebellion against God, that we need a Savior. We need a bridge between the chasm, which is our sin, that separates us from a holy God and us in an unholy state. And that Savior is Jesus. As I carefully talked to Wayne about sin and its consequences which caused our separation from God, I noticed that this, this young man who had been stoically hard for months began to cry. As I just told him about God the Father and his heart towards him, not only in creating him, but in his heart wanting to redeem him, wanting to save him, wanting to show him what it looks like to have a good father, telling him, communicating to him the gospel. That though God is good, though God is great, though God is kind, we have turned away from Him. We have sinned. As I began to tell him that, he began to cry. He was beginning to feel, for the first time in his life, the weight of his sin. The weight of his sin. As I carefully talked to him about these consequences, he he, he came to a, a realization of the bad news. And because of that, he was finally ready to hear the good news of what God has done in sending a Savior, His Son, 
to die in our place to accomplish our salvation. And I'm so happy to report that by God's grace, Wayne placed his faith in Jesus that morning. As we finished up our meeting together, I talked to him about the importance of the local church in the life of a believer. I talked to him about the importance of reading God's word on a daily basis and, and praying, um, communicating with the Lord through prayer. But before he left and did any of those other things, I made sure that he knew that at the core of his new Christianity, at the core of his Christianity was the call to make disciples. So in order to start his walk with Jesus off on the right foot, I told him that as we exited that room, he had to go and tell the first three people that he saw what God had just done for him in saving him from his sins. He did that with joy. He went up to the first three people that he saw and stumbled his way through what he had just done and putting his faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of his sins. Well, friends, as we study our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus calling some people to do the same thing. At the very heart of this text, we find this main idea that is fundamental to following Jesus. Are you ready? At the core of Christianity is the call to make disciples. Who are you investing in? At the core of Christianity is the call to make disciples. Who are you investing in? Well, now let's turn our attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message. It's the reading of God's holy word found in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Oh, this is so exciting. Well, let's take a second, go to the Lord in prayer to ask for his help in my preaching of God's word and in your hearing of God's word. Father, we come to you with hearts postured in humility, recognizing that we can do nothing apart from your help. So would you please, 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 Father, please come and open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point this morning is the message. Verses 14 and 15. Well, following Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in verses 12 and 13, Mark now turns his attention to telling us about the beginning of Jesus' ministry in verses 14 and 15. And he does this by telling us in verse 14 
that, that the beginning of Jesus' ministry comes at the time of John the Baptist's arrest. Now, a few weeks ago we talked about John the Baptist, but now we are being informed that he has been arrested and that Jesus sees this, he understands this as the historic, historical moment in redemptive history when he launches into his public ministry. And what is the first thing that Jesus does when he comes into the region of Galilee? Mark tells us in verse 14 that he comes proclaiming the gospel of God. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus' first ministry moment back into town from the wilderness was not to form a worship team. His, it was not to, to start a prayer meeting. It was not to develop community groups. Jesus' first move in his public ministry was to come proclaiming the gospel. Now, why was this Jesus' first move? Well, the reason that this was his first move is because God's mission has always advanced through a message. It's very, very important to understand throughout biblical history, throughout history. God's mission has always advanced through a message. Think about this. Take, for example, the beginning of the world when God created the world. Creation came to be when God spoke. God said, and it came to be. God's mission has always advanced through a message. So the first thing Jesus does as he begins his ministry is he proclaims a message. He proclaims the gospel, the good news. And the reason that Mark mentions this is because he wants us to understand the historical event of what Jesus did, but, but also he wants us to understand, those of us who are down line of Jesus' ministry, he wants us to understand that at the core of, of who he calls us to be is disciples who make disciples. The core of who he calls us to be are disciples who make other disciples. But what is it that we are called to proclaim? Well, the content of our message is found at the end of verse 15 where Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what does Jesus mean by these two statements? The time is at hand, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, I want to encourage you to think about these two statements on either side of a timeline. On the left side of the timeline, indicating all of the past, picture this statement, the time is fulfilled, which means... That all of the events of history, all of the tiny moments in history, all of the big moments in history, all of the moments where people were conscious that they were doing things according to God's word, and all of history where people weren't conscious that they were doing things in according to God's plan, all of the events of history, every last moment of history, the tiny ones, the big ones, all of them were moving towards this moment, the moment 
of Jesus' life and his death in our place for our sins. The time is fulfilled. Before the foundations of the world, you were called to be holy and blameless in his sight. The time is fulfilled where God makes that happen. Jesus, his public ministry begins. And on the right side of that timeline, picture this phrase. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the kingdom of God is at hand is an entire theological, biblical reality that we could spend the whole morning. But we're not. We've got to stay focused on disciples making disciples. But, what, but let's just quickly, what does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God, you could think about it like this. The kingdom of God is, is the location in which, or the sphere in which God's rule and reign is manifested. God is sovereign, meaning all-powerful and all control over all creation, everything in existence. But the kingdom of God is a place in, in, which, in which people are living out under his rule and reign. In the Old Testament, that rule was Israel. But in the New Testament, that rule is the church. And the message that makes those people, Psalm 100, we are your people, the message that makes us God's people is the gospel. Gospel message is what brings us under the rule and reign of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, in light of these two realities, all eternity past, all eternity future, in this person of Jesus Christ, in this moment, the urgency of the rest of Jesus' message should be Felt, verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, there are three separate components in this sentence, and I want to take a moment to break each one of these components down. First is, what is the gospel? First component is asking the question, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of everything that God has done in sending a Savior to die in our place, to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve to die in order to be restored to a right relationship with Him for all of eternity. The gospel message is a message about how God is redeeming a people to Himself, restoring a relationship that we had broken. Relationship with our creator. That's the gospel message. Second, what am I to do in response to the gospel message? The, the message of the gospel isn't a message for consideration. It is a message demanding an answer. So what should I do in response to the message of the gospel. Well, Jesus says two things. The first is repent. Repent. What in the world does this word repent mean? Well, repentance means 
to turn. It means a, a changing of one's mind. It means to turn away from my sin and turn towards Jesus, who is my Savior, is the one who has forgiven me, who has died in my place for the forgiveness of my sins. You've heard that definition, but I want to introduce you to a couple more definitions of repentance that have helped me through the years. A guy named Jack Miller says this, repentance is, is a return to God at my center. I like that. Repentance is a return to God at my center. Another person says this, turning away from as much as you know about your sin and turning to as much as you know of God. It's a picture of repentance. And when we come to faith, we don't see the totality of our sin. We don't see all of our sin at once. It would, it would crush us. There's no way. Uh, we don't see all of our sin. But, but when we come to faith, if we're coming to genuine faith in Christ, we see something of our sin. We see something of our law breaking. We see something of how we've disobeyed God. And it's that thing that's usually highlighted in our mind that brings us strong conviction. Strong conviction. The, the realization that in the current position, state of our being, that if we were to die in this moment because of our sin, that we would go to hell for all of eternity because we've disobeyed Him. Because we're living in rebellion. That's usually part of the sin that we see. And that is what causes us to repent. So you, you, you mourn it. You think, oh my goodness, can I, I did that, I'm doing that, I'm living that way. And it's like you're just, you feel disgusting. You, wanna, you want to remove it, but you can't because it's sin. And you can't get rid of sin yourself. And so what do you do? Then all of a sudden the Spirit does something which leads to the second point. You believe. You believe because at the moment of your conviction, when you're, if you're coming to genuine faith in Jesus, whether that's through a period of events and you can't really remember the exact moment, but it's, it's a realization of, of maybe moments or years or whether it was like me and you came in a moment, a, a second you came to faith, it's this realization of, I am undone. I, I'm a sinner. I've heard people call me sinners in the past, but now I feel it. I know it. I feel damned by it. I feel destined to hell by it. And then, in that moment, you see the gospel. You see what God, you believe. Oh, you see, where else can I go? And then you see, turn. He has made the way. He has died in my place for my sins, for the forgiveness of my sins. And all of a sudden, he becomes the most precious thing to you because he is your savior. He's your redeemer. That's what he means by to believe. The second thing. It means to believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to accomplish your salvation. Let me tell you something. I had another conversation with a young man this week at the pregnancy center. Just a, a hotbed for, 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 camp, for conversations about the gospel. And I'm so thankful for that. So I was talking to him about the Lord. We had never really made this way, talking about the Lord, been meeting with him for a few months. He told me, he told me about areas of his life where he feels convicted, a couple areas where he feels really convicted. And I just was just asking him questions, you know, why are you still living that way? What is your hope? And, and, and he said, 
you know, if I were to die right now, I'm convinced that I, I'd go to hell. And I was like, okay, well, well, what do you do? Like, what do you do about that? I mean, you know what his instinct was? What all of our instincts are without biblical revelation. His instincts were this. I need to try harder. I got to work harder to get out of this situation. I got I to gotta get, get this thing right. I got to get this thing fixed. And is that what Jesus is saying here? Does he say repent and, 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 and live a righteous life? The gospel of God is repent and religion. No, repent and believe. That's why this is good news. It really wouldn't be that good of news if it was just a call to repent and then, and then try your hardest to obey as much as you see, as much as you know. No, 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 that's not that great of news. What's good news is the gospel says repent and believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of all of your sins. I was reading a Rosaria Butterfield book this week, and she sees the gospel really clearly, which is one of the ways I appreciate about her. And she said, as Christians, we, we live... She talked about Adam and Eve and how, how much better we have it than even Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve's relationship with the Lord was dependent upon obedience. Whereas our relationship with the Lord is dependent upon Christ's obedience. That's the gospel. The message of the gospel is, is it's not what you do or can do or have done. It is what Christ has done on your behalf. Dying in your place, absorbing in his body the weight and the wrath of God that I deserved. But he drank it all down so that I could be forgiven. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, saying, repent and believe. Friend, man, it would be a huge miss by me if I didn't ask you this. Have you repented and trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you turned from as much as you know about your sin to as much as you know about God? Have you believed that Jesus alone has earned and accomplished your salvation? If you haven't, here's the just breathtaking, beautiful reality of the Christian faith. You can do that right now. In this moment, it doesn't require you to go and pay tithe to the church. It doesn't require you to go to a priest and have some sort of a mediating conversation before God. No, there is one mediator between God and man, and that man is Jesus Christ. And so right now, you can go to him by faith, cry out to him and say, Listen, for the first time in my life, Lord, I see my sin. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I believe that you have sent your son to die in my place. And I believe that. I want to put, I put my trust in him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. Help me to live my life for you forever. Listen, if you do something like that, if that's a conversation you have with the Lord, please tell us about that. Please tell me about that after the service. I'd love to help shepherd you as you go forward and what it looks like to walk with the Lord and know the Lord. On our next point, we're going to see a picture of repentance in the life of some people. And so that leads to our second point, the messengers, verses 16 to 20. Now, in the circles that 
we live in, we run in, we spend a lot of time talking about the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples. And you know that. It's in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, in a passage known as the Great Commission. We always talk about that as the last things, and we should. We should. We talk about that, and we should talk about that. But rarely do we say anything about the first thing that Jesus tells his disciples. Well, in this passage, that's exactly where Mark directs our attention. And interestingly enough, the instructions are nearly the exact same. (laughs) Mark sets the stage for us in verse 16 when he says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon. Listen, let me just take a pause. I just, I chuckled as I was studying this passage this week, and I thought, remember when we talked about Mark? Mark is, is writing. He, he didn't see these things firsthand, but he knows Peter really well. He's good friends with Peter, and Peter has communicated to him at some point all of these things that had taken place in the life of Jesus and following Jesus. And I just sort of chuckled, right, with Peter's influence in the Gospel of Mark. You know, can you imagine Andrew reading this account and being like, Wait a minute, you're just, you're just communicating Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon? Like, my identity's better or bigger than just your brother. Come on, I have an identity outside of being your brother. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. Simon is actually Peter, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Don't you love how this story begins? I love how this story begins. After all, I am a fisherman. But more than that, I'm so thankful that the first place, that the first waters that Jesus cast his net in were in the pools where ordinary people like me swim. Here were two ordinary men, Simon and Andrew, Peter and Andrew, and they were casting a net into the sea. And as Jesus walks by them, Mark records these breathtaking words. He says this, he saw Simon and Andrew. He saw Simon and Andrew. Mark wants us to understand that this isn't a story about Jesus calling the first two men that he happened to randomly see as he came back from the wilderness into the region of Galilee. Listen, nothing about what God does is random. Instead, Mark wants wants every disciple of Jesus to understand the weight of this moment. When Jesus looked at these two men, here's what he saw. Jesus saw two men whom God had chosen from the foundations of the world to be his people. That's amazing. He will say this later in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own will know me. And I lay my life down for the sheep. As Jesus sees them, he moves towards them and says in verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. 
Now, oftentimes, when we think about a presentation of the gospel, we tend to use words like invitation. <laughs> but friends, this is no invitation to respond to the gospel. This is a summons to respond to the gospel. Over the last few months, I've been watching a, a TV show on Netflix called The Crown. You've seen this, but it's kind of familiarizing people on this side of the big pool of a monarchy, what it looks like to live under a monarchy, under the late Queen Elizabeth. And one thing is for sure, as you're watching this film, if the queen requests your attention, it's not interpreted or seen as an invitation. You know, I'm a little bit busy today. I got some house chores to get done. I'm going to the local store. No, no, no. It is a summons to come and stand before the monarchy. And like a two-sided coin, Jesus says to Simon and Andrew, follow me. While on the other side, he says this, and I will make you fishers of men. This takes us back to the point of this passage. At the core of Christianity is the call to make disciples. And what does he mean by fishers of men? I have a, a, good, a couple good friends that live out on the East Coast. And I don't know, maybe like a year ago or so, they had invited our friend Mickey up to visit them. And it was a bit of a chilly, I don't know if it was in the fall or maybe the early spring, but it was a chilly, chilly afternoon, but they decided to go fishing out on the East Coast. And, and as they're fishing, it's a little bit cold, they're kind of on the edge of this pier, and they're sort of bundled up relatively close to one another, maybe for warmth. And, this, and as Aaron recalls this, funny story, he says, this kind of this big burly looking fella walks up to them with tackle box in one hand and fishing pole in the other, and he says, what you guys, what you guys up to today? And Aaron whipped around, and he said, oh man, you know, we're just out here fishing for men. And they said that that guy, his eyes got big, his face made a funny look, and he thought, I'm out of here. Turned around and started walking off, and Mickey, embarrassed out of his mind, gets up and says, no, 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 no. Fishers for men is not what you think. Fishers of men is a biblical statement about evangelism. But it begs the question, what does he mean by fishers of men? Now, I think I have always wrongly interpreted this statement, fishers of men, to, to, to be kind of a call uh, for people to be evangelists, sort of just sharing the gospel, someone who just shares the gospel everywhere that they go. But as I think about that a little more carefully, I realize that that falls short of the biblical mandate. There's no call in Scripture to go and make converts. Go and make converts of all the world. No, no, but there is a call to make disciples. Jesus intends for Christians to reproduce what they know and believe from God's Word in the lives of other people. Fishers of Men is not simply a call for evangelism, but it is a call for discipleship. It's a call for for pointing people to the importance of the local church. 
Helping someone understand the importance of a healthy prayer life. Helping someone understand the necessity of, of, of God's word and then how to read God's word. Coming from a background where maybe someone doesn't read much, how do you then expect someone to read God's word? What do you do when you read it? Do you pray through it? Do you meditate on it? What do you do? Discipleship entails all of that. Jesus intends for Christians who respond in repentance and faith to the gospel to prioritize reproducing all of Christ in all of life in someone else's life. Now, how effective was Jesus' summons on Simon and Andrew? How effective was Jesus' summons with these two people along the Sea of Galilee? Well, Mark tells us in verse 18, intentionally using this word, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. That should never be lost on us. These men, in all of their trade, in all of their lifestyle, in all of their current habits, all that they were doing, Mark says, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And as we move on, Mark tells us a similar story. Starting in verse 19, he says, going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, the sons of thunder, who were in their boats mending the nets. Here we go again. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. Man, all four of these men on the Sea of Galilee responded in radical faith as they left everything they knew to follow someone who they just met. Yet, I can't help but think someone whom they felt like they had always known. Or maybe even better yet, someone who had always known them. Now, why did they drop everything and follow him? Well, if we look on social media and we search for the most followed men and women on the planet, we'll find a few things in common. We'll find people following beautiful people. Is that why these four men immediately left everything to follow Jesus? Isaiah 53 verse 2 says this, He had no beauty that we should desire him. So no, that's not why. We find people on social media following wealthy people. Matthew says in chapter 8 verse 20, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So it's not that Jesus isn't wealthy in his earthly ministry. We find people on social media following politicians. But Jesus tells Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Again, that can't be why. They're leaving, they're dropping everything to follow him. So why are they immediately dropping everything that they have come to know? Everything that they know about their life. Everything that they know about their future. Why have they dropped everything to immediately follow Jesus? Listen, 
their response to the gospel in that moment, because no doubt Jesus is preaching in that moment. Jesus is calling for them to repent of their sins and to trust in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Their response should remind us what theologians call the effectual calling of Christ. Or we might say it like this, God's irresistible grace. Think about that. If you're taking notes, right? I mean, that, that, those are some beautiful words. God's irresistible grace. Here's what that means. That upon hearing the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and gives to the elect the new birth, graciously gifts to God's elect the new birth so that we would respond in faith. And that's exactly what these men do. They respond in radical faith as they leave their nets and leave their father and leave the hired servants and follow after him. It's amazing. Their response is a picture of what Jesus requires when we follow him. He requires that we have, that he have our entire heart, our utmost devotion. A prerequisite class in the School of Christ Discipleship Program covers this material plainly. Listen, Jesus is not looking for fans in this world. Jesus is looking for followers. For example, he tells a crowd in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you read through the Gospel of Luke in particular, you'll notice that a couple of times, various times in Jesus' ministry, Jesus himself goes to great lengths to make sure that the fans who were trailing him understand the cost of discipleship. I mean, it's just amazing. There's no, people don't do that in our day. People just really want to get as many people to follow them as they can. But Jesus isn't afraid of small numbers. He wants hearts. He wants genuineness. He wants authenticity. He wants people who say they follow him to not be fans, but to be born-again, genuine Christians. At various times in his ministry, he goes to great lengths to address these fans who are trailing him because of his publicity, because he's becoming known for miracles. Who doesn't want to hang around somebody who does miracles? Who doesn't want to hang around somebody who does walks on water? But listen, this is what he says to the crowds in Luke 14, 25. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters. Yet, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What, what happens? Do the fans stick around? No. You read the accounts, it says that they leave. They leave. They walk away. This is a hard saying, is what they say in response to what he says. 
Friends, do you think if we preach this message more often in our day, that some of the large crowds saying that they were following Jesus would begin to thin out? They certainly did in Jesus' day. Well, that leads to our third and final point this morning, the mission field. Mission field. If at the core of Christianity is the call to make disciples, then it should bid the question, who am I pouring my life into? Who am I discipling? Who am I helping to come to stronger biblical convictions in their day-to-day life? So that's what I want to talk to you about in this last point. And I want you to think about that. I want you to ask yourself, who am I pouring into? Now, since the call to Christ is a call to make disciples of Christ, I think it should color everything that we do in life. It should inform and color everything that we do. But where do we begin? Well, I think it's helpful at this point to think of our lives in concentric circles. At the center... The area that should receive our best and our most attention is our family. So parents, how are you pouring into your children? Not just teaching them how to have good manners like yes sir and yes ma'am, which I hope you are teaching them to say those things. But how are you pouring into them God's word? How are you teaching them God's word? How are you ensuring that they understand the gospel? That their right standing before God is never going to be based upon their perfect obedience and obeying everything mommy and daddy says, but in everything that Christ has done on the cross. How are you, how are you doing in that? How are you making disciples? Well, I'd like to give you a suggestion. I've mentioned this a number of times, and I'm always available if you want to ask some follow-up questions about how that could look in your home. But I think one of the best ways to transfer both the gospel and a biblical worldview, because it's really, really important that our children have a biblical worldview, meaning that they look at the world through the view of the Bible. One of the best ways to transfer the gospel and a biblical worldview to the next generation is through the use of catechisms. The Puritan Richard Baxter makes this sobering statement which stops this preaching pastor in his tracks. He comes to this realization after 13 or 14 ministries of public preaching ministry. This is what he says. This is Richard Baxter. Wow. I study to speak as plainly and movingly as I can and yet, I frequently meet with those that have, been under, that have been my hearers eight or ten years who know not whether Christ be God or man and wonder when I tell them the history of his birth, his life, and his death as if they had never heard it before. And of those who know the history of the gospel, how few are those who know the nature of that faith, repentance, and holiness, which it requires. That's really sobering for a preaching pastor. 
Richard Baxter, who far exceeds any ceiling that I have in preaching ministry, is coming to the realization that after people sit under his preaching for eight to ten years and he goes for a home visitation, they say, Pastor, would you help us understand, is Christ, is he man or is he God? Uh, uh, well, he's fully man and he's fully God. Oh, really? Well, why don't you ever tell us about that? <clears throat> uh, actually, last week was Christmas. We did talk about that. Oh, God, yeah, that's right. I, you're kind of boring up there. <laughs> I kind of get tired of hearing you. I hear some things, but I guess I missed that one for the last 10 years. So what was Baxter's conclusion? Was it to quit? The ministry? Oh, I said, for not. I give up. No. This is what's crazy. Baxter's conclusion, his, his solution was this. His solution was the implementation of catechism in each and every family in the life of his church. Now, Richard Baxter was much smarter than the pastor that you have. He wrote his own catechisms for the people. I'm just recommending catechisms that have already been written. But nevertheless, they are very good. So mom and dad, consider doing this at home. Consider doing this at your own home. And if you're looking for a free resource, I know the Dardens have a catechism that they would recommend. You can always ask them about theirs. Um, but the one that we use in our home is called the New City Catechism. And you can actually buy that catechism. I'm sorry, you can get it for free by downloading an app on your phone. And it's just a few things as exciting when you hear the voice of a little, a little two-year-old repeating after me, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but that we belong to God. Don't ever under, underestimate how much they can know and remember. Karis was saying that at two years old. And we were just following in the example of Ben and Abby Elkins who were teaching their kids. So consider a catechism in your home. Let me give you another recommendation. I want to encourage you to disciple as you go. Deuteronomy 6.8 has a call to disciple as you go in every area and stage of life. So that means with every snowfall, every sickness, every moment of joy. God has designed for us to help our children see his glory in every one of those moments. So as often as the Lord reminds you, redeem those moments and show them how the Lord is in them and over them. For example, because we had the snow this past week, I guess on Friday, uh, we made sure to ask Karis as we're playing in the snow, building a snowman that like, fell over five minutes after we built it. We asked her, Karis, who created the snow? And who caused it to fall from the heavens? God did, is what she said enthusiastically. Yes, that's right. Pray with your children. Listen. What you really believe about God will come out in your prayer life. And so pray for your children. And in particular, pray for the lost. Sometimes, sometimes a year's worth of teaching can be felt and realized in 10 minutes of praying with your kid. If they see your earnestness, your desperateness, your, your posture before the Lord, crying out to Him for help, pray with them. And then lastly, share the gospel with your kids every day. If they disobey, make sure and share the gospel with them after you discipline them. Jesus calls, God calls you to repent. 
which means to turn away. Don't disobey mommy and daddy anymore. But Jesus has died on the cross for our sins so that all of our sins, including that one you just did, can be paid, is paid for on the cross. Share the gospel. The next concentric circle, and these last two will go quickly, is our friends and church family. I should be asking myself, how am I pouring into these people whom I'm already talking to with great regularity? Let me ask you this question. Do you have any friends who are non-Christians or who are new Christians? If you are a mature believer in the life of this church, I want to ask you to please consider pursuing someone who is a younger believer in this church for the purpose of regular meetings of accountability and discipleship. It'd be a beautiful thing to realize that there are older men discipling younger men in this church and older women who are discipling younger women just in the ordinary rhythms of the life of this church on a week-to-week basis. And older men, I want to put the responsibility on you. Don't wait for young men to pursue you. Go and find them. Go and pursue them. Ask if you can, ask if you can disciple them. Be straightforward. Can I disciple you? If you're interested in a resource for discipleship, consider this one produced by Lifeway called The Beginning, First Steps for New Disciples. And then finally, the third concentric circle is the workplace. If you work around non-Christians, then your heart should be to see their souls one to faith in Christ. Are you the person that God wants to use to see this soul one to faith in Jesus? It sounds daunting, doesn't it? Where do you begin? Well, we want to help you. So what we're going to do, we're going to have, we want to help you have a starting place. So what we're going to do this year is we're, we're encouraging our community groups to do a study. A study of, of radical, ordinary hospitality. We're, stu- we're, we're encouraging our community groups to go through the book, Rosaria Butterfield's book, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Practicing radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. Now, Rosaria has a unique calling. And it should, we shouldn't feel obligated to do everything that she says, for she's not writing the Bible. The Bible is our authority. But she's going to give us some really great ideas. So don't walk away feeling guilty of all the things that you're not doing, because that could be the temptation. But just kind of feel inspired of all the things that you could do. Uh, small things that you could implement. The goal will be to read this book together and answer study questions together. So you can ask your community groups leaders more about that. So friend, at our conclusion, let me just ask you one final time, how are you pouring your life into others around you? As we've learned from this passage of scripture, God intends that every disciple make disciples. Because at the core of Christianity is the call to make disciples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we ask you for the help to live your word out. We need all the help that you will give us, Lord. And we trust you, praise you, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.